Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we take a break from our regular programming for a show about veterans with stories from our archives. We begin with an interview with Elliot Adams, former national head of Veterans for Peace. Then we hear from Brian Troutman about the Capital Region chapter of Veterans for Peace. Later on, Jesse Gould talks about founding the Heroic Hearts Project to spearhead the acceptance and use of psychedelic therapy as a means of addressing the current mental health crisis among veterans. After that, Lee Vardigan, Director of Vet Services at Albany Housing Coalition, speaks about fireworks as triggers for many veterans. Finally, veteran Jack Gilroy speaks about highlighting Martin Luther King Jr.'s anti-militarism message. Our first story is with Elliot Adams, the former national head of Veterans for Peace. He spoke with Mark Dunley in 2021 about the insanity of war and points out that military and political leaders could not go to war if people refused to participate. We are joined by uh, Elliot Adams. Um, some of you may have heard him previously on um, our, our show as the uh, former um, president of, of Veterans for Peace, but uh, uh, just generally a, a peace activist these days. And he suggested we start off with the question, you know, isn't it time to end the insanity of war? So, so Elliot, what, what can we do to stop war? They can't have a war without us. Um, And realistically, the government, I hate to put it this way, but the government wants war. Uh, Not everybody in the government, not the whole government, but they want war. That's why we have war. I mean, you hear things like, well, uh, you hear things like war is failed diplomacy. Well, diplomacy doesn't fail until you stop. Um, And you don't stop working at diplomacy until there's a reason and typically the reason it fails is because the warmongers get tired of waiting and they create a war so in like in that case i would say war i would say that war is the assassin of of diplomacy not war diplomacy um and we look at history and i mean we talk about war as being also, we talk about as being sort of a natural consequence of conflict. I would pose to you that war is not the result of conflict. Conflicts are ginned up, created to justify war. I mean, just, just in recent history, think well, history, think of the sinking of the Maine, think of the Gulf of Tonkin, think of, uh, think of them all. Think of, oh, remember we invaded, we invaded, we did. Iraq because of 9-11 and Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 and then we invaded um, uh, Afghanistan because we wanted to get hold of Osama bin Laden even though if you remember listening to the news during the time Afghanistan offered to extradite Osama bin Laden we said no no never mind we're just going to invade uh, so the history is long and continuous where where governments just start wars um, and this leads what we're at. This, this leads me to this question: You know, well, well, why war? Um, 
And I think you think about it, you think, well, okay, war is not about conflict resolution. First of all, it doesn't resolve conflict. Second of all, we know how to resolve and then you think, well, okay, war is not about national security. It doesn't create national security. And we know how to create national security. And that leaves me wondering, okay, if that's the case, then what is war about? So I Well, I, I would say, you know, my short answer, one of the answers, of course, is the whole issue of the military industrial complex. And in fact, the, you know, was it 57, 58% of the discretionary federal budget goes to the military. And virtually every congressperson has, uh, you know, military contractor in the district. And so even, you know, people on the progressive side of the aisle, like Bernie Sanders, has often not been good on trying to stop military spending because it impacts upon, um, you know, a contractor in their district. It's about money. It's about money. And I would say, Mark, I was just going to say that of all the wars I've participated in, all the wars that I've studied, one thing has been true about every single one. One thing has been true, and that is that a few people made a whole lot of money. Very few, but a whole lot of money. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, and you talk about the fact even the progressives and the liberals keep supporting the defense, the defense system because this is huge, huge pile of money. So it could just as easily be a huge, huge pile of money for health care or a huge, huge money of a pile of money that we spend on infrastructure rather than spending on war. And after all, all war does is destroy things. You know, it, it destroys it destroys material things. It destroys people, it destroys relationships. Um, so it's a bad choice. Well, even during um, the Trump era, uh, the reality was that the you know Democrats in, in Congress uh, approved greater military spending than what you know Trump you know argued for. So this yep. is clearly you know sort of a, 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 a bipartisan effort. Um, you know what do we do with you know Biden who basically came in as pretty much a war hawk? You know what what can the American people do to say hey we have other problems? You mentioned healthcare, obviously you know, climate change, the whole problem of economic justice. How do we reorient our our government to more domestic needs and people's needs, not military spending? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. But we can look look at history. So I think Vietnam is a really important lesson. The reality is Vietnam is the only war that, are, that our government ended. Every other one just keeps rolling along. Um, and it only ended it because they were forced by the military, by the, you know, the soldiers, by the taxpayers, by the people to stop it. And they only did it kicking and screaming. Uh, the reality is they can't have a war unless they have the, the bodies of our loved ones to fight the war, unless they have our tax, dollar, tax dollars to fight the war. Now, they're not going to send their own loved ones to it. Well, um, one of the things from Vietnam was because Vietnam, you know, a lot of people were, were drafted. And, and, you know, after that Vietnam War, we've gone to the so-called all-volunteer army, basically the super patriots combined with, you know, people who are sort of desperate, you know, financial, you know, backgrounds and say the military, you know, gives me some way out of the poverty I grew up in. The poverty draft. Absolutely. And that's what they chose to do it. But it doesn't make a difference that we can that we we can still pursue that same process. 
Um, they need our they need our support. Now you bring up this question of everybody supporting the wars. One of the really interesting things to think about is you constantly hear people who say, "Oh yeah, war's terrible, war's bad," but not this one. Um, and that is a key piece: is that they if they can sell, if they can just get you to buy into this war, either through either through support or through tacit support. Um, then they can have their war. Once they start their war, they keep saying it's like it's like it's like um, getting out of Afghanistan, and and, uh, and Biden said, "Oh, we're going to get out. Uh, we're going to get out later in an honorable war." You know, you go back to um, Eugene McCarthy. I don't remember that, but he was when he was running for president. Um, they asked him, "Well, oh, this Vietnam, you know, it's it's really complicated. How do I get, we get our soldiers out of Vietnam?" And he said, "Well, I try ships and planes." And it's that simple. If you if you weren't putting if you aren't putting soldiers on ships and planes, you're not getting out. And that's what happens. They keep trying to get us to go a little bit further. And they talk about an honorable peace. So you know, I, I was I was in Korea. I was in Japan. I was in, in, in a lot of countries where I wasn't in uniform. And the reality is, when a U.S. goes into those countries, we we um, support a government does what we want them to do dependent on us and not the people. And as we pull back, that government has two choices. It can shift to sort of supporting the people. Most likely what will happen is it will fall. It will fall because we aren't there at up. And that's going to happen whether you do it this month, next month, 10 years from now. Afghanistan hasn't gotten any, any actually Afghanistan's gotten less stable. Iraq has gotten less stable. Um, every country we get into gets unstable when we, and you take Iraq, Iraq was a, was a stable first world nation when we invaded, when we invaded second, uh, now it's an unstable second or third world nation. Afghanistan's completely been de destabilized. So we aren't, you know, it's hard to recognize we aren't, we are not part of the problem. That's the solution. We are the problem. It is our war, our warmongers, which created the problem and will continue to create the problem until we just get out. And is it going to be messy? Yes, it's going to be messy. And if you didn't know it was going to be messy when you started the war. You know, what should people do at this point to tell, you know, our leaders no more wars? First thing they have to do is they have to actually believe that it is time to abolish war. And I would say quite simply, not only is this the time to abolish war, if we don't if we don't abolish war, species will not survive. So the first thing they have to do is make their personal commitment that they believe it's time to abolish war and then use all their tools, let our politicians know all the time, be willing to take a little bit of a risk in either a demonstration or in refusal to pay, pay taxes, uh, talking to, and it's just a matter of building a classic, building a move, build a movement to abolish war. And now is the time. Now is the critical time. And it's also not a bad time just because we have this history of one bungled war after another bungled war. And now we're trying to create a war in, in Iran, which would be even worse. I want to thank Elliot Adams for joining us today. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. Mark Dunley's interview with Elliot Adams is from 2021. Our next story focuses on Veterans for Peace's local chapter. Brian Troutman was the president of the New York Capital Region Chapter for Veterans for Peace back in 2018 when he spoke with correspondents Nick Sergey and J.P. Podgorski.
Brian Troutman is a professor of, at Hudson Valley Community College and president of our local chapter of Veterans for Peace. Brian joins us now via phone. Hi, Brian. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank, you for, um, thank you for joining us, and uh, tell us a little bit about Veterans for Peace. Uh, well, I think I should begin by uh, giving a little background on uh, my veteran status, um, and that then would give you good insight as to why I joined Veterans for Peace and what the organization is all about. Um, I'm a post-Cold War Army veteran who served four years on active duty um, during the 1990s, and I've uh, been an educator uh, for about two decades now, um, including teaching peace studies for approximately eight years. Um, I currently teach economics and the humanities, um, both through Hudson Valley Community College and online um, as well. Um, and I've connected with the Sanctuary for Independent Media some nine years ago as a volunteer, and I, I want to add that I'm also proudly a sustaining donor of the sanctuary. Um, I discovered Thank you. Veterans for Peace about eight years ago. Um, we're an international nonprofit organization founded in uh, 1985 with the mission of educating on the human and financial costs of war in order to end militarism and abolish war as instruments of national policy. Mm. Um, we, we aim to replace our longstanding war culture and war economy by helping to build a more just, peaceful, and sustainable world. Uh, as part of our mission as well, we seek justice for victims of war on all sides, um, so that includes veterans and civilians um, that are caught up in war. Now, I should um, add that toward achieving these ends, we use strictly nonviolent means, mm -hmm. um, so nonviolent direct action methods from nonviolent protest to nonviolent resistance. Um, uh, our national office uh, is located in St. Louis. And we have approximately 3,000 active members. Um, we welcome both veterans and non-veterans of all generations. Um, so that's, uh, that's one, I think, um, thing that makes us stand out as a, as a veterans organization is that we do work with allies um, that, that are non-veterans, and we welcome them to our organization. We have about 120 chapters across the country and internationally including one here in the Capital District, as you mentioned during your introduction. Mm -hmm. I just recently became president of, the, of that chapter. Oh, congratulations. Um, some of our international chapters include uh, the UK, Vietnam, Okinawa, Japan, Mexico. So we are represented broadly, um, again, across the world. And we, we work very closely with those, those chapters and participate in their conferences and actions that they have abroad as well. On, on behalf of our mission. Um, I'm a lifetime member of Veterans for Peace as of last year. Um, anybody can become either an annual member or a lifetime member. We, um, I joined uh, the national board, and that's, that's the, the role that I currently have with the organization, uh, three years ago. And during that time, I served as treasurer for one year. And during, during my time on the board, and this gives you some insight into some of our actions, um, I worked on the Standing Rock Coordinating Committee, uh, physically participating in Standing Rock. I visited um, Standing Rock in 2016. And for, view, or for audience members who are unfamiliar with Standing Rock, it was a native-led resistance against the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota. Mm 
mm. about two years ago. Um, we have a number of national projects uh, that I work with uh, through Veterans uh, for Peace, including a project called Veterans Challenge Islamophobia, which uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with since we, we did some local actions um, within the past couple of years. And this was meant to uh, challenge counter anti-Muslim hate and bigotry. We, uh, we held a voter registration drive outside of a local mosque, um, and uh, so that was, that was part of our, our actions to, uh, to combat Islamophobia. Um, currently, we, um, we're working on developing a Veterans Peace Conference, International Veterans Peace Conference, uh, that we plan to hold next year in New York City. Um, mm-hmm. We are working with the United Nations in order to gain space uh, to ho- hold a portion of our conference at the United Nations. Um, so that that gives you some background and some current uh, current detail in terms of what our organization is about and what we're involved in. Wow, um, wow! So that's, there's a lot going on there, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. And I just touched on some of our national projects. Um, others others are listed, of course, at our website, veterans4peace.org, um, oh, and they range from. Uh, from I mentioned the Veterans Challenge Islamophobia campaign. We also have a uh, a sailboat um, <laughs> that our organization is in the in the process of becoming uh, full owners of. We've worked uh, we've managed uh, the, this project uh, through our organization for a number of years. It's called the Golden Rule um, anti nuclear sailboat. And again, some of your listeners may be familiar with the Golden Rule. Um, it's it's decade it's decades old. Um, it originally ran to stop nuclear testing back in the 1950s. And just um, within the past decade, it has been recovered and restored, and it's, and it's again sailing. Um, we're sailing it off the West Coast to Hawaii and the Marshall Islands um, very soon. And um, we hope then to bring it over to Okinawa, Korea, Japan. Um, and again, promoting, promoting anti-nuclear work um, to ab- abolish nuclear weapons and um, educate on the effects of radiation to both humanity and the environment. Mm. Um, so this is our Golden Rule Peace Boat is, is a great symbolic um, effort that, uh, you know, increases our recognition um, of, of our effort to abolish nuclear weapons. Uh, we'd like to remind you that uh, you're listening to Brian Troutman. Uh, Brian is a uh, professor at Hudson Valley Communica- uh, Community College and president of our local chapter of Veterans for Peace. Uh, Brian, uh, there are plenty of veterans probably listening now, and what what can you um, speak? How can you speak specifically to them and tell them how they can become uh, more participatory in Veterans for Peace? Absolutely. Um, one of my short term goals within the chapter as as the new president is to uh, reconstitute, rebuild the chapter. It's um, it's it's fallen a bit on the um, on the dormant side, um, unfortunately. However, uh, our our goal, both both myself and our previous president John Amidon and other active members, is to um, is to gain new members. Um, so that's that that's the goal, uh, primary goal in the short term. But we participate in activities locally, such as um, the Veterans Day Parade, uh, Memorial Day Parade. Uh, we're also involved in in actions um, at uh, you know various various rallies for peace and social justice, environmental justice, 
uh, we uh, we protest um, drone activity through the Hancock uh, Air Force Base in Syracuse. Mm. Um, but uh, essentially, what what folks could do if they're interested is they can contact uh, Veterans for Peace directly. There's um, there's a membership form at our website, veteransforpeace.org, or they can contact uh, me directly for information on how to become a member or to at least find out more information about us. Um, I can provide my email address if you'd like, um, and then we could we go from there. Uh, please do. It is Trotman, T-R-A-U-T-M-A-N, at veteransforpeace.org. Great. Thank you. Um I was wondering if in your um, organization's vision for like a, a world in which we do not use war to resolve our differences, um, what, right. what would we use instead, ideally? Well, essentially, um, open communication, nonviolent communication. Um, we have to open up diplomatic channels between the various parties involved in in conflict. We have to prevent conflict by using <laughs> by using means that um, can can prevent uh, the sort of vitriolic and uh, negative negative energy that seems to persist between between various parties, both at the at the national level and and at the organizational level, really institutionally. Um, there are you know, various forms of violence that exist. Um, so we, we attempt to resolve conflicts without violence. Um, to speak to that, to that point more broadly, we do have um, a philosophy, a campaign, if you will, at Veterans for Peace called Peace at Home, Peace Abroad, hmm. um, which essentially means that in order to fulfill our mission of ending war and healing the wounds of war, um, we recognize that violence is a national epidemic. It's it's a global epidemic, um, and we also have to recognize that these various systems of violence and injustice, oppression, um, are linked between our domestic problems and our international problems. We see the direct connection between violence and militarization of various systems here at home with our wars and militarism abroad. Uh, imperialist militarism. Um, so that's essentially we we find that, and we make the comparison with countries that uh, have um, essentially abolished their military or um, have uh, promoted a policy of domestic and and, and foreign policy of peace. Uh, we mm-hmm. we cite Costa Rica, um, we cite uh, some of the Scandinavian countries as as prime examples of of that effort and their uh, and their ability to maintain a military yet. Um, also, uh, not not engage in the sort of belligerent um, activities that that cause uh, violence. So it sounds like you see uh, a really interesting link between just domestic culture and foreign policy. Indeed, we are down about our last uh, minute. Uh, uh, would you like to speak on any? Uh, we leave it open to you to uh, talk touch on any subject that you haven't been able to talk about yet. Well, just uh, lastly, um, this year we're marking the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. Um, so our national conference mm-hmm. this year, which was held this past August in St. Paul, Minnesota, was focused on a theme of reclaiming Armistice Day. Um, for your listeners uh, who are unfamiliar with Armistice Day, um, this was a day that was supposed to be dedicated to peace. 
during World War One um, and after World War Two, uh, through uh, President Eisenhower and Congress, it was rebranded as Veterans Day, uh, November 11th. Mm. So we're trying to educate um, the population about the original meaning of November 11th and how we need to uh, honor uh, peace and efforts for peace rather than honor military and glorifying war. Wow. Um, so again, we're, um, the, we're trying to educate on the true intention behind November 11th. So efforts surrounding November 11th will be dedicated um, uh, to that activity. Uh, and just one last thing, we are, we're participating in an activity called the Women's March on the Pentagon, which is taking place October 21st. Mm-hmm in D.C. Uh, with a number of other organizations, um, uh, which is an effort to, again, educate on the on the human and financial costs of war uh, and to hopefully end, end war as an instrument of national policy. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Well, thank you for having me. That was Brian Troutman, professor at Hudson Valley Community College and president of our local chapter of Veterans for Peace. That was an interview from 2018 with Brian Troutman, the then president of the New York Capital Region Chapter of Veterans for Peace. He spoke with correspondents Nick Sergey and J.P. Podorsky. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Jesse Gould founded the Heroics Hearts Project in 2017 to spearhead the acceptance and use of ayahuasca therapy as a means of addressing the current mental health crisis among veterans. Correspondent Corinne Carey spoke with Gould about his own experience with psychedelics and how he's working to give other veterans access to the healing potential of these substances. This interview is from 2022. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited for this. Can you tell me about the Heroic Hearts Project? Yeah, I'll I'll do a quick uh, background just to give it some context. Uh, My name is Jesse Gould. I was a former Army Ranger, so Special Operations Unit, um, and I had multiple combat deployments to Afghanistan. I was a non-commissioned officer, so in charge of a lot of younger Rangers as well. When I got out of the military, I pursued a career in finance but I immediately hit mental health walls and barriers that I just couldn't figure out. And fortunately, the current mental health system was just severely lacking, generally just sort of a fast track to whatever medication. And so there I was struggling and didn't really have any options or answers and heard about psychedelics, had never had an experience with psychedelics before, didn't really think I would ever would, but I was out of necessity, willing to give it a shot. And so I went to Peru to a traditional ayahuasca ceremony and just saw pretty profound results immediately, you know, gave me a reaffirmation of life and and the skills to succeed. So from my own experience, I founded Heroic Hearts Project in 2017 to educate my fellow veterans who are also struggling and then also provide them a container of support if they also wanted to pursue this modality or other psychedelics. And so we've been operating for about five years and have created sort of the first program of its kind to, to do exactly that. 
psychedelic substances are banned by federal and state law. It's really interesting to hear about an army ranger, a veteran, talking about illegal drugs. It's an interesting juxtaposition. Can you talk about that? That's sort of the interesting time we live in. We, we kind of view the military and psychedelic culture and, and two opposite sides of the spectrum. But what we're actually finding is a lot of these policies around the country and a lot of these initiatives popularizing psychedelics are coming with veterans leading it. And so, yeah, there, there was that sort of thing, my own personal identity. I viewed drugs and psychedelics kind of the same as everybody else, you know, it was, it was a bad thing or it was escapism or for criminals. But I was driven there, like I said, out of necessity. And I think because we're seeing such potent effects and such great results with psychedelics, it's really transforming a lot of veterans in, into being advocates for this because most of them have, have tried years, if not decades of therapy, you know, handfuls of different drugs, SSRIs, SNRIs, all to very limited avail. And for those that aren't aware, there's a current suicide epidemic among the veteran community that the VA just has not been able to address at all. In fact, the suicide rates have just increased in recent years. And so then we have these veterans that are willing to give it a shot to go to psychedelic retreats and seeing relief that they haven't felt in decades in a very short period of time. Obviously, it still takes a lot of work, but just the results, you know, like they can't be denied. And so now you're seeing veterans in mass pursuing these retreats despite the illegality. I mean, the laws are one thing, but we all deserve this right to heal. And, and veterans particularly are not going to let these obstacles stop them from taking hold of their life. Would you feel comfortable talking a bit more about your experiences with ayahuasca? Maybe our listening audience doesn't even know what ayahuasca is. Ayahuasca comes from the Amazonian region of South America. There's a lot of different methods depending on which tribe. And at the core of the substance itself, ayahuasca is two plants that are brewed together um, and create this uh, very thick drink. So that's one plant is a vine that's called uh, ayahuasca. The other plant is generally a, a leaf called chacruna or other plants that have DMT. And when they're combined and brewed in this way, the drink that comes from it is a very potent psychedelic that can last for about four to five hours. So hallucinogenic, so you're in this you know, very intense sort of world. And so my experiences and what we see generally now for most of these retreats is they're over the course of about a week and they include multiple ceremonies. So I went there, there's four ceremonies over the course of the week. And it was very intense. So the first two ceremonies, one, since I had no psychedelic experience, is really just me, you know, holding on. It was, it was like a bunking bronco kind of thing where I was just like, what, what's going on? Just very intense. Ayahuasca itself has sort of a purging dynamic where the majority of people puke during one point of the night, which can reflect in sort of getting out some of your inner trauma or anxiety. So had all that, these shapes and sounds and, and, you know, weird geometric patterns and colors and just really no rhyme or reason to it. Eventually, when I started kind of getting used to it and, and subsequent sort of ceremonies and also realizing that a lot of the challenge I was causing myself of just not letting go and fighting it and these stored up traumas that were just trying to come out, I wasn't giving them proper way of, of releasing when I finally kind of learned these lessons and let go and, and just went along for it, it was just a very beautiful experience. It transformed into a very serene, calm, self-affirming experience. And towards the end is when I got a lot of profound insights and downloads of letting go of the uncontrollable and, and allowing you know my journey to unfold as it will and enjoying the challenges that come as a result of that. 
But even beyond the profound insights or those more specific answers, it really just, without my knowledge, seemed to physically and mentally sort of just change the way my brain operated. It really seemed to reset it, really seemed to just make it more efficient and not fall into these previous anxiety gaps that I had before or hypervigilance. And so afterwards, just be in the same situation I had been pre-ceremony and I wouldn't have this burst of anxiety or this burst of hypervigilance. I wouldn't be as susceptible to going into these deep modes of depression like I had in the past. There was just this fundamental change in how I interacted with the world. And it sounds like it's been a lasting change for you. Yeah, absolutely. And it it takes work. And that's what we want to emphasize. These are not magic pills. It's not that you just go and magically everything's healed. They do provide you tools and they do seem to have a very positive effect. But the majority of the effect really comes from how do you utilize these tools and how do you prepare for it? So if you go in with preparation, you go in with intention and you go to these retreats that focus on safe set and setting and, and with people who know what they're doing. But then afterwards, you take these lessons and you take this opportunity to really enact change, positive change in your life. That's the magic sauce. That's the that's what really makes the, the, the dynamic of it is that you have this beautiful window to where you feel great. You understand some of the negative paths and patterns you were falling into before. And now you have this motivation to make those changes, make better relationships in your life, possibly change you know uh, your work-life balance or work in general go back, form a meditation practice, or go back to the gym. All these simple things we kind of know, but we just get so bogged down into our negative patterns, our routines, our trauma, that it can be so overwhelming to even start that. So this is really that opportunity where you can enhance your life in general. With the added bonus of it does seem to have a lasting physical and psychological element. If you're going to go into this, you have to understand that there is a lot of work involved. You use the word magic twice, and here at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, we're going to be sponsoring a symposium, a mushroom symposium focused on magic mushrooms on April 19th, and I know we've invited you to participate in that. Looking forward to having you share some of your thoughts there, but this notion of, they're called magic mushrooms colloquially, psilocybin is the the compound found in magic mushrooms. But many people look at magic mushrooms and psychedelics mostly as a recreational drug. You've talked about it in the context of a ceremonial experience, and you've also made reference to their use in therapeutic settings. It's so interesting to me, this confluence of recreation, ceremony, and therapy. Can you speak to that? It kind of falls into people's approach of it. The reason I brought up magic is because we don't want people to think it's magic. We don't want them to just have this sort of instant gratification relationship with these substances because generally speaking, it's not going to work that way. People to each their own, if they want to use psilocybin recreationally, if they're going with friends or what have you, I, I think people should have that ability. But what we are dealing with, what I was dealing with, and the clients that Heroic Hearts Project has are people are veterans suffering with trauma. And so there are specific ways of working with psychedelics that is more aligned with trauma work. And so with recreation versus the trauma work, recreation, you tend to doing it to either sort of escape reality a little bit or enhance reality. And, you know, with psilocybin particularly, you feel bonded to nature and other people but there's a lot of distraction there. Right. And so that's kind of what we think with recreation is that there's a lot of other stuff going on, 
when we're doing kind of more trauma focused work, you know, you're going in there with intention of what you're looking to sort of explore more with yourself or what you've been struggling with. The set and setting is very controlled to where you go there. It's very peaceful, calm, secure. Uh, you'll generally take bigger doses and then you'll be sort of in, in your own mode. You'll generally have either at night or have blindfolds on and then have sort of music that's aligned with the ceremony going on. All of these things allow you to really go deep inwards and not be distracted by anything because all these psychedelics, they enhance your senses, your, your sense of sight, smell, touch, all these things are enhanced. So you want to sort of minimize the distractions there. That way you can really focus on the internal process and really get a lot out of it there. And so that's sort of how we design it. And, you know, that's not, we're not saying this is the only way to do it. This is just how we found works the most effective. You've been involved in efforts at the state level to change laws that would allow more veterans to have access to this kind of experience. Can you talk about that? Because of how many veterans are struggling and because they're finding such great relief with psychedelics, you're finding across the country so many veteran advocates of these policies just because they see the failure of the mental health system. And there's just so many that have been struggling. And I think policy leaders have also seen that of how effective veteran voice has been in just opening the door to conversation, but also making this a bipartisan issue. And so that's what we've seen around the country and and Heroic Hearts Project has been involved in pretty much the vast majority, starting with Washington, D.C. And we were part of the campaign in Oregon that was successful. We're now the co-sponsors of the California bill. We helped out in the with the Texas bill, Connecticut, the, the list goes on. And in each of those cases, it's actually surprised people who have been doing politics for a while because we'll have veteran advocates um, in the local area talk to representatives, talk to state senators, state assembly members, regardless of their political leanings. They all tend to listen to what what these veteran voices have to say, you know, out of respect for their service and just them being really good advocates for for the efficacy of this, because these are people that have, like I said, tried nearly everything else. And so that's sort of the power of what we're seeing uh, with with veterans going in there, where it's really helping some of these bills pass and really making it more of a human issue as as opposed to sort of a a political issue. Well, my dad passed about eight years ago. He was a Marine. And I think about the trauma that he experienced during his service in Vietnam. And I so wish I so wish I could go back and give him access to this kind of powerful treatment. I think it would have changed our family's life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as with all of these things, there's triumph and tragedy in it. You know, it's it's tragic that so many veterans for so many years and, and civilians in general have had to suffer essentially needlessly because of archaic drug policy laws. But the triumph now is there there does seem to be a light emerging, and we're seeing some great results. We're seeing some support, enthusiastic support on both the academic, political, and, and local level of these psychedelics. So it does seem like we're, we're coming into a new era of mental health care that actually is effective. That's not just leaving people with their scars from war, but they can actually come out of that and still thrive in life post the military experience. Well, Jesse, I've so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for sharing your perspective on this. And I hope we'll see you on April 19th. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to to share with your audience. And for those that want to find out more, heroicheartsproject.org. We're a 501c3 nonprofit on most social media. So please reach out if you can support. We, We always love the support. 
Corinne Carey interviewed Jesse Goulds of the Heroics Hearts Project, ahead of the Ending the Prohibition of the Mind, a Mushroom Symposium virtual program organized by the Sanctuary. A recording of this event is available on our website. Next, we have an interview with Lee Vardigan, Director of Vet Services at Veteran Housing and Services for Albany Housing Coalition, Inc. He spoke with me, Sina Bazilahiki, about how fireworks affect the residents and what they're doing about it. Fireworks are a tradition to celebrate Independence Day in the U.S., While many are in awe of the display of lights and booming sounds, not everyone feels the same way. One group that is often disrupted by the fireworks are veterans due to post-traumatic stress disorder from fighting in in wars. To learn more, I'm now joined by Lee Vardigan, Director of Vet Services at Veterans Housing and Services at Albany Housing Coalition Incorporated. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. So fireworks are loud with bright flashes of light, creating smoke and burning smells. What does this do to a veteran who lives with PTSD? Well, um, again, I'm Lee Vardigan. I'm the director. Uh, We have a veteran's house, which is transitional housing on First Street in Albany. And uh, I can tell you that we have significant numbers. In other words, out of the... 32 beds that we can fill right now we actually have 29 of them filled so we have a house full of veterans with a variety of issues and some of those issues are sensitivity to uh, noise and smells and uh, and such some of them are diagnosed with PTSD some of them just have um, drug and alcohol abuse issues they're all previously homeless veterans that have issues that they're dealing with and they're coming from homelessness into transitional housing where we provide a ton of services, you know, to include a bed, meals, case management, employment counseling, and access to the VA, access to um, the civilian hospitals and, and, and the hospitalization and health care if they're not eligible for VA health care. So we do have veterans that do um, that are affected by these noises, and um, it's a problem every year. I've been here nine years, and I can tell you I think it's getting a little worse. So you know that the 4th of July is coming. How do you prepare and, um, and yeah, please expand on, on how you feel like it's progressed over the years. So we have um, some normal meetings Monday and Tuesday nights with the case management team. And these issues are addressed. And I'll, I'll tell you how I think it's getting worse in a minute. But basically what we tell our veterans, you know, we have quieter places in the house, say in the lower level in the basement where there's TVs and such air conditioning running and things like that, which kind of reduces noise from the outside a bit. So we, we do direct them to go down there if they're hearing a lot of fireworks. Um, we do, uh, we always, they always have access to call the case managers. They have access to call their VA um, healthcare providers, crisis lines, um, and, and that kind of business, um, they obviously can speak to one another peer to peer. Um, but there's not a lot I can do with the outside noise and what I think is a problem that's getting worse because the fireworks stands and the availability and the legality to buy the fireworks is just getting 
it, it's it's all over the place. I I go up the street and see the fireworks stands up with the tents all the time, and a lot of it is buy one get two free. And so, you know, people are just buying these fireworks up and they're just setting them off. And what I could tell you is I don't know the legality of setting off fireworks that you buy legally in the city limits. I don't think it's legal, but what I could tell you is it's abused in the inner city of Albany. Um, and this is according to my case managers, to my veterans, to the, just the staff, you know, we, we're, I'm literally in an office right around the corner from, from that. But yeah, there are what I call kind of open celebrations, uh, large fireworks going off at night, late at night and debris all over the streets and just a big open kind of party and a mess to deal with the next day. And I can tell you that I haven't personally called the police, you know, but I know um, it's been talked about in neighbors and such, and there's not much that's done, you know, when these fireworks are going off rampant. And one of the other pieces of this is, you know, there's other legal large displays that are that are going off, you know, across the river and it's it's easily uh, heard from the vet house which, you know, we're right in the middle of Albany and you know, we're right at uh Lark and Clinton and you know, First Street. So, it's been affecting our veterans for years again for the last 9 years I've been here. And I think it's getting a little worse. What do you and the veteran services suggest as some solutions? Well, you know, we've had relations with the community engagement teams, you know, on the local police force, Albany. And, um, you know, we send emails. Uh, we, we've had them over here at our office. We've actually addressed other issues besides um, fireworks issues, you know, blatant drug issues and transactions going up and down Clinton Ave and things like that. Um, so we continue to engage, you know, with the police force. They do know us and respect us. You know, we're not being a burden to them. But we have some community relations. You know, we, we've had up and down First Street in front of our vet house motorcycle rallies where we've had 50, 70, 150 bikes come up the street and park. And, you know, we put signs out. We talk to the neighbors. It's kind of like an open house thing. And, 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 and so, you know, they're, they know who we are. They know what we do for veterans. And they're all right to us, but they're still just uh, not that concerned about blowing these fireworks off at all hours of the night, and especially on the weekends, and especially, obviously, as we get closer to the to the holiday, you know, um, <clears throat> which is actually on a Tuesday, right, this year. Mm-hmm. So um, I, not much I can do. Uh, again, we, we talk to our veterans. We tell them where to go. We tell them what lines to call. We prepare them. Um, you know, some of them are on medications. We make sure, you know, hey, do you have your medications? Make sure you take them. Wear earplugs. You know, go in your room. But there's not a lot I can do. But, you know, it's definitely an issue for my veterans uh, in the vet house. You mentioned talking to neighbors, inviting them in. Um, what are some other ways that you're working on getting awareness around this issue? Me personally, um, you know, besides you um, asking me to speak on this a little bit, I've, I haven't called any other news agencies or done any other interviews. Again, if I was uh, here at nine o'clock at night on a Saturday night, which I'm not, you know, I would ask 
the people that are setting them off, you know, if you could please just cease and desist. We have veterans here with issues, and I don't know how that would be received. Every year it's going to happen, and we deal with it to the best of our ability, and I don't know what else we can do. You know, it would be it was different when they were illegal, you know, and you couldn't get them as easily. And then, of course, if they were going off, the police would come and respond to it and do something about it. But I'm 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 telling you, I'm a little bit stuck for a solution. How does your staff work with veteran residents during a PTSD trigger? We're a staff of about, let's see, five. We we have over 10 case managers. You know, there isn't anybody but about one or two of my case managers that aren't pure veterans. So we're veterans that speak veteran and know how to speak to veterans. So, you know, we, we communicate with them the best of our ability, and we just um, we talk them through it again. The majority of my staff are retired, 100% disabled veterans, so it kind of helps uh, when they when they're speaking, you know, and and just trying to be peer to peer, you know, and just offer some support. But there's not a lot we can do. Well, again, our case managers are not licensed, um, you know, psychiatrists or psychologists. You know, we're case managers, you know, with the experiences of of being a veteran and 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 going through the you know, the system of applying for disability and getting it and helping them get what they deserve and what they need. And, you know, sometimes that's the best we can do. Lee Vardigan, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you for talking about Veteran Housing and Services. Is there anything that you would like our listeners to know as we leave? No, I think the only thing I... I I really want in general to say is, you know, um, the Albany Housing Coalition, Veterans Housing and Services, is kind of the premier organization connected to the VA. We're not the VA. That And we take care of homeless veterans. So, you know, the community needs to know that we have beds, we have case management, and we get our veterans off the street and out of the missions, and we put them in transitional housing, and we house veterans and take care of veterans. It could be a security deposit, first month's rent. It could be groceries. It could be a bed. It, you know, So we're helping our veterans in the local community, and I think everybody needs to know that. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay. That interview is with Lee Vardigan from 2023, recorded prior to 4th of July. We end our Veterans Day special with Mark Dunley's interview with veteran Jack Gilroy about highlighting Martin Luther King Jr.'s anti-militarism message. We're joined today for a peace bucket by uh, Jack Gilroy, uh, who is uh, active out in the Binghamton area with um, uh, Veterans for, for Peace. Um, and uh, he's going to tell me the other group in just a moment. But we uh, asked Jack to, to come on to talk about a couple of events that they have planned uh, in the near future, including a number of events around the uh, Martha the King's uh, birthday. Jack's been very active in the uh, the campaign, I believe, about uh, you know drones. But Jack, why don't you just tell me, I know, what is the other group you're also involved with besides Veterans of Peace and you know, why are you focusing on uh, Martha Luther King's day? Okay, sure, uh, Mark. Uh, there, Actually, we like to work in solidarity with a variety of the peace and justice groups. And the other group that I mentioned uh, uh, earlier when we wrote was uh, Peace Action of uh, Broome County. And Peace Action, of course, the large 
national organization, but uh, we're very active with Peace Action uh, here in uh, the Southern Tier of New York. So I, I pretty much act as a uh, as an events coordinator rather than take some title. Uh, you know, that's that's my job, and I do it for both uh, Peace Action and for Veterans for Peace Chapter uh, Chapter Ninety. I'm also active with uh, Upstate Drone Action uh, out of Syracuse. In fact, uh, I have spent more time in uh, the Jamesville Penitentiary than anybody else in uh, in the group. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I do a lot. We, we have some things you might want to question later as to what we have planned with the Upstate Drone Action people. Uh, we also, of course, uh, are very, very active with bandkillerdrones.org. That's bandkillerdrones, all one word, .org. And uh, some of the members of Band Killer Drones and uh, Rising Up will be involved in, uh, in an activity in honor of Martin Luther King's uh, very strong voice in opposition to militarism, especially during the Vietnam War. Now, uh, many people, of course, are aware about Martin Luther King and his uh, leadership of the civil rights movement. And uh, certainly here uh, in New York State, and particularly in the Capital District, we have the Poor People's Campaign, which also emphasizes his role in, you know, pushing for you know, economic justice and, and, and jobs and to stop discrimination and hiring. But you you raise the issue of militarism. And I, I think people know that, uh, you know, towards the end of his life, before he was assassinated, he became quite active and vocal against the Vietnam War. But, you know, what was some of his, you know, vision in terms of, you know, trying to stop the militarism uh, in the United States? Yeah, well, he so you know, he irritated a lot of uh, his own uh, members, uh, his own group, uh, you know, the civil rights people who, who said he was off focus, that uh, he has no right, they, they told him, to be jumping into something that is not uh, the business of the civil rights movement, which is racism and trying to right the wrongs of all those horrible things that have occurred, you know, in the history of black people in the country. And Martin Luther King didn't back down from the civil rights, obviously, uh, but he said, I cannot be silent. And uh, that major speech that he gave uh, at the Riverside Church, uh, April 4th in uh, 1967, uh, he, he made the statement that is so outstanding that we will have it on our banner uh, when, we are, uh, when we have our event here uh, in two weeks in Binghamton, and we'll have it on... Uh, a banner up in Syracuse when we're at the Dome on the on January 22nd for the biggest Martin Luther King dinner, they, they claim, in the USA. And that statement is what he said at the Riverside Church in that, uh, that speech. The greatest purveyor of violence in the world is my own government. And later on in that paragraph, he said, I cannot be silent. Uh, when we made up the banner, some of our, our folks said, we don't want to put I cannot be silent in there uh, we, because that sort of is disjointed from uh, from it. I disagreed, but I, I, I gave in and said, uh, you know, OK, we'll just use the, uh, the statement, the focus that uh, of the greatest purveyor of violence in the world is my own government. Remember that he was killed one year from the day that he said that. Right. Uh, one year from the day. And remember as well, what a lot of people don't take into consideration is that in a civil suit in Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, that the King family won their case that the United States government was involved in his assassination. 
and that can be checked out. Go online, anybody, and check it out. It's something, again, that is very often uh, neglected to be said. So, yeah, militarism uh, could very well be the thing that led uh, to the uh, death of Martin Luther King by certain groups within the United States government. Now, I, I know we have an active uh, peace act chapter here in the Capital District, and, and certainly John Amidon and others with veterans of peace have been, you know, fighting the drone war. But you know, there's probably two big issues we've talked a bit about recently. One is that once again on an annual basis, the United States just adopted the largest military budget ever, getting, you know, close to a trillion dollars, probably above a trillion if you actually threw all the stuff in it. And then, of course, there is the ongoing war. Uh, in the Ukraine, and and certainly, I think most peak groups would would condemn Russia for having invaded uh, the Ukraine. But at the same time, I think many people understand uh, that to a certain extent, the largest extent, the United States has turned uh, the war in the Ukraine into a proxy war against Russia. So, what so what are some of the messages this year at Martha King's event that you hope that our you know federal elected officials you know grasp in terms of the peace issue? Yeah, I, I think there are many, Mark. Uh, you know, I, I think that what you just mentioned, the uh, uh, the, the budget, which is roughly a trillion dollars, uh, and, you know, 12 billion of that was supposed to be for uh, child care, uh, a special bill that was, was supposed to end poverty among children in part of the whole campaign of uh, Reverend Baker uh, and what he is doing with the Poor People's Campaign. But they couldn't come up with $12 billion but they can come up with 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion for the Ukraine, for the war in the Ukraine. And of course, uh, they went 40 billion over what the Pentagon itself actually asked for. So it's kind of a weird uh, system that we live in in the United States that Martin Luther King for sure knew that this whole idea of militarism was tied in with racism and with poverty. They were the three major evils that he he looked upon. And so it, so very often, however, uh, his role of militarism is shunned by uh, many people, including civil rights groups, including the NAACP and others, who feel they don't want to get into that argument. Here we are, you know, uh, 60 years later and still uh, still trying to get uh, the issue out that Martin Luther King, you know, died because of his particular views in reference to the robbing of the people, uh, the, uh, uh, the robbing of American poor uh, by uh, militarism. So I think if that can be drawn in uh, to the discussions, that would be good. We've been talking with Jack Gilroy, uh, Binghamton area, uh, peace action, veterans of peace, uh, upstate drone action. Jack, people want more information quickly, any website they can look at? Yeah, they could go to uh, bcpeaceaction.org, bcpeaceaction.org. Thank you, Jack, for joining us. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk uh, Magazine. Mark Dunley's interview with Jack Gilroy is from 2023. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine in honor of Veterans Day. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. We want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Bria Barthel, Mark Dunley, Corinne Carey, Nick Sergey, and J.P. Podgorski. We appreciate all of our listeners. You make all this work worthwhile. Thank you.